Okay, so let me tell you what we're, what we're doing tonight, what this is going to be. Tonight, um, let me start by saying this. I believe that God has a future plan for national Israel. That is, people who are blood descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That he has a plan for them, and it's a plan for prosperity in their future, and for a big, massive prosperity like nothing they've ever experienced before. Um, but many people have been taught otherwise. Um, in fact, after the teachings I've been putting online over the past few weeks, talking about Israel and what God's doing and has done through Israel and his plan, it's Romans 9 through 11, I've had some people contacting me saying, you know, you mentioned Old Testament prophecies about Israel that aren't fulfilled. Which ones are you talking about, Mike? Because I don't know what you mean. Because they haven't been taught this stuff before. So here's my thought. My thought was this. Let's take the concept of God's future, unfulfilled, yet-to-be-fulfilled plans for Israel, and let's go through the scriptures that talk about them. Let's do it systematically. Let's get biblical about the issue is the thing. Let's establish those things. Um, my goal here is not to attack people. Usually, uh, conversations about what we're going to talk about, Israel having a future versus, say, replacement theology, theology or supersessionism, which no one knows what that means, right? So it's the same thing. Supersessionism is another word for replacement theology. The idea that Israel has been basically superseded by the church, the church now replaces Israel, which is a really convoluted, confused kind of thing. Anyways, um, Israel and the church are not uh, identical things, and one does not replace the other. Um, but what happens is people tend to start by talking about how, which group is anti-Semitic. <laughs> that ends up being the debate. Which group's anti-Semitic? Yet there's a bunch of Christians just sitting on the sidelines going, can we just ask what the Bible says instead of arguing about who's anti-Semitic? And so I'm not going to attack any side or the other. We're going to say, what does the scripture teach on the issue? Um, we're not also, I'm not advocating an entire system of eschatology or end times. I'm not advocating, I'm, I'm just talking about one issue, Israel. Just tonight, just Israel. It's too much to get into everything. Let's just talk about Israel. We're just going to ask, what is the biblical case? And we'll do that sort of in three different ways. One, we'll start by going through Romans 11. The rest of Romans 11 that actually talks about God's plan for Israel, that lays out the specific details. Two, we'll then move over to Old Testament yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecies. We'll actually look at them in context and say, why should I believe that this is something that still has to happen? That'll, that'll be... Uh, what we'll do second. And then the third thing is we'll look at some information from Jesus and a little bit in the book of Acts as well, because I think some things that Jesus says and then Peter says actually in Acts really connects all this stuff together in a way that um, it just makes me smile because it all fits, you know, it all fits together well. So um, if you're looking for background, the previous studies in Romans 9 through 11 that we've done, especially the past two weeks, I've talked a lot about Israel, God's plan for Israel, the, what happened to Israel, how they were, there's a partial blindness for a season, all this sort of thing. I would say, go back and watch those videos. I'm not going to go back and reteach the same material. I want to move forward and teach you stuff I haven't shared with you in the past several weeks yet. So let's start with Romans 11, picking up where we left off in verse 24. So Romans 11, 24, that's where we're starting. And it says, <clears throat> For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature... And were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? This is this is really, we, we talked about this grafting concept last week, about how we're Gentiles. The I'm a Gentile, anyways. Grafted into this olive tree, which is Israel, relating to the promises of Israel. There, there's there's a mixture of concepts that's there, of course, but but I'm the wild one grafted in and. 
if I, as a wild, as a Gentile, can be grafted into these truths, these promises, basically the messianic deliverance and salvation that comes through Jesus, if I can be grafted into this, then how much more natural is it for a Jew to be grafted into, back in, even if they previously rejected Messiah? How much is it just this easy, simple connection thing that happens when a, when a Jew comes to Jesus in, in, in this beautiful way? Um, so far from suggesting that it's impossible, Paul is saying it's natural. You know, it's a natural thing for there to be this messianic reception uh, amongst the Israelites or amongst Jewish people. It's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. So the grafting in here that he's talking about in context of Romans 11, and I encourage you to do your own study here and read it, but the context is this. This grafting in is the, these branches were broken off, meaning the majority of, of Israel rejected Messiah. So they're being grafted back in is what? The majority of Israel receiving Messiah. That's the contrast that we're getting here. Let's continue reading and he'll explain more in verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until, and I would underline that word, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So there's a danger in Romans 11.25 as he's coming to the conclusion of his teaching on Israel. The danger is that you will think we're better than the Jews, basically. The irony is this is the Gentile now taking the place of some of the Jewish people which they took in the past, thinking we're better than the Gentiles. And we look at them and we're like those Pharisees, self-righteous, this and that, this and that. And then we look over at the Jewish people and say, oh, they would never receive. Look at their hearts are hard and their eyes are blind and we're just getting kind of feeling good about ourselves. And so we've sort of switched places, if that's the case. What we need to look at is, is, is I was blind, but now I see. You know, and this same vision of, of Christ could come upon anybody, anytime. So don't be wise in your own opinion. We don't want to have a non-Jewish pride any more than we want to have a Jewish pride or any other kind of pride. In, any sort of pride parade of any kind is pretty much a bad idea. You could be having pride about your culture, like I'm Irish, yay good for you. Like this, there's nothing actually to be arrogant about or self-righteous about in these, in these things. Um, so don't be wise in your own opinion. But, but let's look at this. That blindness, here's the mystery, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What is the fullness of the Gentiles? In context of Romans 11, it is the gospel going out to the Gentiles and large numbers of Gentiles receiving the gospel. So the fullness is this idea that eventually you'll get to the end of this season, this time where there's lots of Gentiles receiving the, the Savior, that then when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, what happens next? What, based on verse 25, seems to be happening after the fullness of Gentile, the Gentiles comes in? Well, the blindness on Israel is lifted. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So the blindness is lifted. We've already seen from Romans 11, not 10 and 9, all three chapters, that this blindness is a rejection of the gospel of Christ. So if this blindness is lifted, what are we seeing? A reception of the gospel of Christ, of Messiah. That they're receiving this. So this is, this is in context, a large number of Jewish people in some future time receiving Messiah. Have we seen this happen yet? I don't, I don't think so in history, not quite. Um, so look back a few verses to Romans 11, uh, verses 11 and 12. So just backing up a few verses to verses 11 and 12. 
and keep in your mind this idea of the fullness of the Gentiles, fullness, 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 that, that concept. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. That's Israel. It's not all over for them to stumble, but not a, not a complete destruction. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure or their lack, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So there's this contrast, like they're lacking right now because of rejecting, largely rejecting the gospel. That's their lack. And how much more would their fullness be? And yet there's this time where the, the Gentile fullness is coming in and then the Jewish fullness will come in. So it's, we're talking about revival, gospel revival. There will be tent meetings or something. I mean, there's going to be revival going on in large part. Um, that word fullness, it's referring to um, a big work of gospel reception among Gentiles and then a big work of gospel reception among, among the Jewish people as well. Um, I don't know if that bothers you. Something is wrong with you. Like if, they, if this concept bothers you of large numbers of people getting saved, then you got to take a look in the mirror there and consider this. Uh, now, all of this that I'm saying, it flows very naturally right into verse 26. Verse 26, it says, And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Now this is where the, uh, the, the supersessionist or replacement theology, this is how they would handle this verse. They would say, I, I think, and I'm trying to represent them correctly here, that they would say that the word Israel in verse 26 is referring to some sort of other thing than national Israel, ethnic Israel. By ethnic, I mean the bloodline, right? It's referring to something other than that. Um, but there's a problem with that. If you think Israel in this passage just means church or just means Jew and Gentile, everyone who believes in Jesus, then how is it that in verse 25, one verse before that, it clearly didn't mean that? So let's just be consistent, right? I mean, Paul's not going to use the word Israel to mean two totally different things one verse after the next. Let's just read verse 25 and 26. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's a contrast between Israel and the Gentiles, two different people groups. Israel's not just the church, right? We're talking Israel versus Gentiles. Then in verse 26, so all Israel will be saved. It's the same Israel in verse 25. Does that make sense? This is, this is really 101 Bible study techniques right here. Right? <laughs> like you just read it as it is. Um, then, of course, the deliverer will come out of Zion, um, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That concept, turning away ungodliness from who? Jacob, right? Jacob, Israel. This is, again, the nation. This is the people. This is a prophecy of Jewish revival. It's quoted from Isaiah 59, verse 20. In particular, it's quoting from the Septuagint, which is really the Greek translation that they were using in the first century times. Um, Anytime you read New Testament, use, quoting of Old Testament passages, it's going to be written in Greek in the New. It's written in Hebrew in the Old, so they're not always perfectly translated. Uh, I should say it may be well translated, but it may not be perfectly the same in your Old Testament versus, versus the New. That's a translation issue largely. Um, but this is a prophecy of Jewish revival. Now what's interesting is it, on your, for homework, here's your homework assignment. If you want to read Isaiah 59 starting in verse 20 and just keep on reading right on through verse uh, chapter 59 through chapter 60, 61 and 62 of Isaiah, and see how this is talking about this great revival of blessing and God's work in Israel. 
It's just very consistent. So Paul, in the passage where he talks about all Israel, he then mentions this passage in the Old Testament which speaks of these things, this spiritual blessing coming upon them as well as blessing in the land, in the land. Uh, Verse 27, it says, For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is again quoting from Isaiah 59. It quoted verse 20 and now it's quoting verse 21. Except that in phrase, when I take away their sins, is not found in that passage, Isaiah 59 verse 21. So let me give you a short version of a commentary debate that goes on. Why is Paul quoting this that's not actually found in the text of the Old Testament? I mean, he's not just... It's not just slightly worded differently. The phrase, when I take away their sins, nothing like that appears in that passage of Isaiah 59 verses 20 and 21. So what's Paul doing here? Um, Well, there's really two options uh, that are promoted. One of them is that he's actually quoting uh, Isaiah 27 verse 9, also from the Septuagint. So he's jumping chapters earlier. Now, they could do. You can actually take um, passages... We do this as well. You take one concept from one place in the Bible and another concept from another place in the Bible and you put them together. right? For God so loved the world that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Like I, I combine these ideas. I've totally pulled them you know, and smashed these two different verses together. John 3.16, Romans 5.8, you know, and I've smashed them together. But, but the concept makes sense. It's, I'm, I'm teaching something true. Um, but here's what I think he's actually doing. Here's another option. He's not quoting, I think, Isaiah 27.9, the Septuagint. I think what he's doing is he's trying to paraphrase what Isaiah 59 is about in general. So Isaiah 59, leading up to verses 20 and 21, it talks about how Israel is dealing with their sins and their transgressions are too much for them and then God comes and delivers them from their sins. And so he's reminding us of this as a good teacher. He's like saying, look, what, this is my covenant with them, right? When I, and then he looks back up at the whole passage in 59 and says, when I take away their sins. Guys, don't lose the point. There is a time where God's going to remove the sin from Israel, bring salvation to them, and the same time will be this prosperous blessing. So I, I, hope, that, I hope that makes sense. I, I, I just like pausing sometimes as we go through um, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament and you look at the Old Testament and you go, wait, how are you quoting this? Because sometimes they're paraphrasing, sometimes they're drawing multiple quotes together, and I want to train you so that you don't get stumbled by this idea. Instead, you're actually looking for it. You're actually going, I understand what's going on here. Um, So let's read uh, again verse 28. Concerning the gospel, Romans 11, 28. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. This is, again, talking about Israel. Now, again, in verse 25, 26, 27, we're talking about Israel, Israel, Israel. This is national Israel the whole time. That's why in verse 28, he says, concerning the gospel, they're enemies. Obviously, this is first century unsaved Jewish people. Because he's not talking about Jews that are saved that are your enemies. Or the church is your enemy. That's not what it's saying here. This is talking about unsaved first century Jews who Paul still considered to be Israel. This is consistent. So they're considered enemies for your sake. This is because, of course, they're, they're opposed to the gospel. They're, they're against it. They're rejecting it. But concerning the election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. Now, here's another example, actually, of the word election, where you can't really take that word and put the doctrine of election into the passage. Because in this case, it just, again, it just means choosing. But God's selection or election, his choosing of them, 
is about choosing a nation, a whole group of people, to accomplish a purpose at some point. And why are they precious? Why are they considered beloved? Because yet their descendants will be inheriting these wonderful th promises in the future. The future of these people is, is determined. And so they're beloved for that sake. God's, God's pres preservation is on Israel. His hand is upon them to carry them through, to get them through hard times, because there is yet a glorious future. So, the, um, the election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. The fathers there, we're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the fathers. Let, let me read to you Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8. This is what God spoke to uh, Abraham. It says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and to your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, just in casually reading the passage, you just, if you were a descendant of Abraham, you'd be thinking, I'm, I, think, I think I'm supposed to be living in that land at some point, right? I think there's something supposed to be happening here. This is just how you would take the passage. This covenant is repeated to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It's not repeated after that. It's carried to Jacob. That's why the namesake is Israel, Jacob, Israel, for these people that would inherit this promise. Then in verse 29, I, I feel like Romans 11 is so clear. It's so clear when you just study it in context. Verse 29 says this, For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Why say this here? Because God has promised them something, and then Paul goes, and he can't take it back. He can't take it back. He's not going to take it back. He cannot lie. He made an unconditional promise about the land. It wasn't, if this, then this. It was like, I'm going to do this. This is going to happen. Now, there were later things. The law came later and introduced curses and blessings and all that sort of thing. But it doesn't, you might quote what, what Paul says in Galatians and apply it to this situation. He goes, the law, which came 400 years later, does not annul the covenant. God made a promise. I'm going to do this. The law certainly was there to show the depravity of man, show the fallenness of, of mankind through Israel as well. But yet, this is the gift and calling that's irrevocable. Now, you may have read Romans eleven twenty nine 29 and thought it applied to gifts that God's given you in your life or a calling that God's given you in your life. But let me say this. Before we apply it there, we need to apply it to Israel. We have to say, no, no, this is about Israel. He's quoting this specifically about Israel, unconditional promises to that nation. So that's, that's, that's the point. It seems to seal the deal. This verse, in context, is about Israel's future. In particular, the people in verse 28 who are enemies of the gospel they yet have a glorious future according to an irrevocable promise from God. That's the context of the passage. So this seems, this seems to, to me to seal the deal. Uh, verse 29 and 28 and 27 and 26 and 25 and 24, 23, 22, 21, and kind of going backwards all the way back. It seems to seal the deal about this glorious thing for, um, for Israel, and it kind of excites me. I'm, I'm kind of happy about it. Uh, I just like seeing God do anything. I mean, it's neat to see. Um, but then you can apply it to you. And you can say, you know what? God's grace upon Israel is a reflection of his grace upon me. Oh, well now, now I feel pretty good about God enduring with them through their hardships and their rebellion and their betrayal and their whatever, you name it. Whatever they've done that I've done. And then you can apply it to you. 
But verse 29 is not about every single thing God ever calls anyone to do. Um, like he called King Saul to be king of Israel, then he rejected Saul later. So this is not saying every single time God calls somebody, it's a permanent call. They can't, you know, like your, your pastor like embezzles from the church and cheats on his spouse. And then you're like, he's like, but the gifts and calling are irrevocable. So you can't fire me. It's like, yes, we can. You know, like, bye. You know, that's, that, that would be taking a verse out of context. The primary application here is Israel. Um, and you can apply it to, uh, to some other things as well, of course, secondarily. Then in verse 30, as we continue, it says, For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience. That, that's a summary of how Jewish rejection of the gospel led to Gentile reception of the gospel. They disobeyed, and so the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. Um, so we've obtained mercy through their disobedience. Verse 31, even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown to you, they also may obtain mercy. This is a future prediction of the mercy of God falling upon Israel in the same sense in which it didn't when they did not receive Christ. Like there's like there's a parallel. Largely Israel rejected Jesus. Well, largely they will receive him. That's what I'm reading in the text. The job for us now is to outreach to the Jewish people and the Palestinians. To outreach to the Canadians. Right? and the Texans, and the Californians, <laughs> to the Chinese, and the Japanese, and the, and the Taiwanese, and I can't think of any other nations. I saw, like, my geography is not very good. So we, our job, obviously, is outreach to everybody, but as we outreach to the Jewish people, I can't help but be kind of excited for what God's future plan is for those people, and to know that their reception of Jesus brings in some pretty interesting and wonderful things. Um, this takes us back to the idea that we're to try to make them jealous, provoke them to jealousy. And that, that phrase, provoke them to jealousy, seems a little weird. We usually think of jealousy as a negative thing. In this case, it means when you look at someone and you go, I want that. And that, that's, that's what we want. We want to say, look at the love I have for you. Look at the change Jesus has made in my life. I'm worshiping your Messiah. Don't you want that? And, and to, try to try to share that. Then in verse 32, he says, For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on this is the end point weaving together everything he said now in Romans Jew and Gentile all under condemnation so God can show how gracious he is he shows how gracious he is and that yeah we don't deserve the land any more than, 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 than we deserve Jesus we don't deserve anything and God's grace and mercy is the thing that gives us everything we have in life. It is all by his grace. It is all by his mercy. Nothing I've, nothing I've earned. I have nothing I've earned. It's all been given to me by grace. So God is this, it's just seen as this glorious God of grace and mercy, um, which we will understand so much more when we stand before him and see his holiness, realize our own fallenness, and realize what it meant for him to send his son to die on the cross to pay for what we've done. So now what I want to do is this. I want to move away from Romans 11, now, now having said all that, and answer some other questions. Um, specifically, let's look at some of the Old Testament prophecies that are not yet fulfilled. Not yet fulfilled. Like, what is it as you read in the Old Testament that says, this still has to happen? Like, this, this hasn't happened yet. Um, so we're going to look at that. <clears throat> I've already shared with you Genesis 17. There's other... Genesis 13, other places like God's promises to Abraham we could speak of. But, but let's look at Isaiah chapter 2. So please turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. 
And I want you to try to try to notice as I'm reading through it the specific things that are supposed to happen according to the prophecy. It says the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house, pardon me, shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. This this language is it this isn't really a debate. The, the mountain of the Lord's house, we're talking about Mount Zion, we're talking about where the temple is, we're talking about Israel. It's going to be established above the other hills or the other mountains, the other, uh, the other nations and their authority structures. Israel will be above those things. And verse 3, many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. There'll be this, this sense where God is ruling other nations through his, his central authority in Israel. And rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spear, spears into pruning hooks. Meaning they'll take weapons of violence and turn them into other uses because there's no point for war anymore. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, when in Israel's history did this happen? I mean, it have to be after Isaiah. So you can't look at the pinnacle of the peace of Israel in Solomon's time and think that that was some fulfillment of this. This is, this is after Isaiah. And I, I'm going, probably not in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple destroyed and the people uh, murdered in mass, killed. Now that's certainly not a fulfillment of this and it hasn't happened since then. This is, Imagine this. Imagine what watered-down meaning you'd have to have to say that this has already happened. Like, what do you think it means? Like, the nations will come to Israel? Like, is that just visitors on airplanes coming to, like, tour the land? Or, but it says that basically God's going to be ruling the nations of the world through Israel, located specifically out of Jerusalem. Like, what is that? How do you, I'm, see, the thing is, you have to symbolize this and, and, and spiritualize this to the point where it's like it doesn't almost mean anything. Um, and then I have, I have a problem with that personally. Um, there's other passages in Isaiah that can be, can be looked at as well. Um, <clears throat> Isaiah 11, Isaiah, like I said, 59 through 62, I recommend reading that. But I want to move to some other prophets as well. So let's look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, and I think this is even more clear. Um, Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 35, it says, Thus says the Lord, who gives sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the seas and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. So to set up this, this statement, it reminds us that God has set the sun, set the time cycles, the ordinances of the moon and stars and all that. Um, then it says in verse 36, If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Not a temporary casting off, but a permanent cessation. Thus says the Lord, If heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. This seems pretty obvious to me. If if, and it gives these hypotheticals that are impossibilities. If this hypothetical thing that's never going to happen happens, okay, then I'll cast off Israel. 
If the, if, if the sun explodes and disappears, fine, then you can say, I've cast off Israel. If time stops functioning properly, then you can say, I've cast off Israel forever. But until then, you cannot say this. And then it specifically says at the, the last verse, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord, meaning as a consequence of their sin. Their sin will not annul my plan for them. Not that there won't be punishment or them, God dealing with them for their sins. That will happen. So whatever argument or justification somebody can give for Israel having no future as a nation, I think it fails when compared to this passage. Because it says in verse 36, they shall not cease from being a nation before me forever. A nation. A national identity as Israel, not just a spiritual one. I honestly don't know how else to interpret this. Um, I want to be fair and I want to look for another op option, another way of interpreting it. But if I interpret this and water this down in some sense, don't I have to be consistent and treat the rest of the prophecies in the Bible that way as well? But when Jesus came, didn't he fulfill pretty literally the prophecies about him? It seems like a very literal fulfillment. So I think I should be looking for, you know, if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. That, that, that's a good rule of thumb. Let's turn to Ezekiel. Are you guys having fun? It's good stuff. It's good stuff. All right. Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. While you're on your way there, let me just tell you this. Um, the context of Jeremiah, that passage, comes right after the prophecy in Jeremiah 31, 31 of the new covenant that God will make with Israel. With all of, all of us. I mean, ultimately, we come into that same covenant. We're grafted in. But, um, but it, it comes after. So in other words, it's like when they receive this Messiah, this new covenant, then there'll be this fulfillment of these things as well. I'll explain more of that in just a moment once we get to Acts. Um, okay, so Ezekiel 37, verse 21. It says, Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into into two kingdoms again. That's like the northern-southern division that happened after Solomon's death. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now you might go, well, that could refer to almost any regathering of Israel with a revival and a restoration spiritually. That's true, but let's keep reading. Verse 24 David, my servant, shall be king over them. Now, Ezekiel writes long after David's death. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I've given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, if you go, this is, this is just Israel as in the church. But look at verse 28. As you keep going, it says, the nations also, that would be Gentiles, will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel, 
when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. This seems to defy any, any spiritualization of Israel here. We're talking about a literal land where it's the promise of the fathers comes to the children and it's forevermore. The place is the very land of Israel where their fathers dwelt. The duration is forever. That's in verse 25, 26, twice in both those verses. Also in verse 27 and 28. Forever, forever, forever. It says it again and again. David is ruling. Now you can say, well, obviously, Mike, that's just silly. If that's your Bible study method, fine. <laughs> My Bible study method is not to ignore things that I think are silly, but to let the text speak. Because uh, David's alive still. <laughs> he has eternal life. And so, of course, we're going to see him and meet him again. This is entirely possible uh, to happen as well. And I do think so. And I have opinions about when and where and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but tonight we're focusing on just one thing. So, so David is ruling there. Um, and there's a differentiation between the nations, the Gentiles, and Israel, national Israel. So we don't have a mix of the two in this point. Not a significant mix anyways. Not that there couldn't be some Gentiles in Israel, obviously. So there, I think, are some pretty powerful passages that I honestly can't think of one legitimate way to interpret them apart from seeing a real national future for Israel. And there's many more, but that's a good, good selection. Um, now, if you would, let's look at the words of Jesus, because Jesus said some stuff that I think relates to all this stuff that we've read in Romans 11 and that we've read here in, uh, in these passages. And I think it ties it together in a beautiful way. So Luke 21. Luke 21 is where you're going to look. Look at Luke 21, verse 20, we'll read 20 through 24. And the context is Jesus warning them about the destruction of Jerusalem. I believe the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus is warning them about. <clears throat> so let's, let's read this in, um, in verse 20 of Luke 21. It says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who were in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who were in the midst of her depart, and let not those who were in the country enter her, for these are the days of vengeance, that all the things which are written in the uh, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be a great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword, and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Um, I do think that the context is 70 AD. I think this, there's a, a repetition of this, a, a thing like this in, a, in a, another future time. But I think the context of this particular statement is uh, 70 AD. But notice the word until. Jerusalem, in verse 24, Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Let me ask a question. What happens when, the, when Jerusalem is no longer trampled by Gentiles? Is it A, completely vacant and nobody's there, or B, the Jews are in charge? Which one do you think is implied by it not being trampled by the Gentiles? I think the, the strong implication is that Jerusalem would be inhabited and controlled by non-Gentile Jews, by Jewish people. I don't see another option for this. That's, that's uh, from a statement here of Jesus. Um, now, now turn to Acts chapter 1, look at verses 6 and 7. In Acts chapter 1, it, here we are after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus, he spends, you know, 40 days traveling, doing whatever it was he did during the 40 days. We know some of the things he did, but we don't know a lot of it. And then as he's about to depart in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Therefore, when they come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, now that we've read all these promises that have yet to be fulfilled about Israel, do you understand why they had such strong expectation? And they're thinking, Jesus, is it now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, they're being oppressed by the Romans and all that. Um, Is it now? And he says to them, "Um, you silly fool, there is no more Israel. No, he doesn't say that. He says to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. They are not rebuked. They are not corrected in the sense of, no, uh, I'm not going to restore Israel. That's not going to happen. He actually implies to them, it's just a matter of time but I'm not going to give you the information about when. So the when isn't for you to know. Okay? You focus on, and he goes on, you focus on preaching the gospel. That's your, that's your thing. Preach the gospel into all the world. That's what he tells them. Um, I think that's pretty interesting. The implication is, is that it's going to happen. And they certainly would have been thinking about a literal Israel, not a spiritualization or something like that. Now turn to Acts chapter 3. And um, in Acts 3, I think maybe Peter had more information later on in Acts. Uh, The Holy Spirit had then come upon them. And uh, they've been spending time in prayer, spending time studying the word, spending time doing lots of stuff like that. And he goes out and he's preaching now. Certainly preaching with uh, a power that they did not previously have. So in Acts chapter 3, verse 17, Peter is speaking. Now the first uh, messages in Acts all go out to Jewish audiences. This is to a Jewish audience. The later messages go out more often than not to a Gentile audience, but the early ones are all Jewish. So verse 17 of Acts 3 says, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. He's talking about them rejecting and crucifying Jesus. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now here's what I'm hearing uh, Peter say to them. He says, guys, turn to Jesus. Jewish people, turn to Jesus. Because when you all turn to Jesus, Jesus gets to come back. And then the stuff that's yet to be fulfilled the restoration of all things as spoken by the prophets, that stuff gets to happen. It seems to me, my conclusion is this, is that when Israel turns to Christ for salvation, they will also enter into these unfulfilled promises that we read about in the Old Testament. This is my opinion. I think it's based on scripture. I think it seems very consistent with the scriptures here. Let me read to you again what what he tells them, verses 19, uh, starting in verse 19, Acts 3. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Now, if it was to a, G- a Gentile audience, I think we would have stopped there. But he continues, So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, Messiah, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive, until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So... Uh, the, the way to kind of get it clear in your mind is Israel's blessings as, as, as in, in inheriting a land and having a, you know, physical prosperity in the land, that's not the same as salvation, right? Any Jew can get saved at any moment, whether or not this is going on. 
But it seems that when Israel largely receives Christ, when there's this big influx, this revival in Israel, that that's also when the huge prosperity of the land will also take place. So they'll come together. The revival of the people, as you know, physically as well as spiritually, will come together. That, that's what I'm understanding from the text. Now let me give you guys a, a few other things to consider. Um, uh, replacement theology... Um, now, some people don't like the term replace, replacement theology, that the church replaces Israel, and, and it's more nuanced than that, and I'm not trying to, I just, I don't want to take 20 minutes to explain the nuance of it to you guys. The point is, is that nobody remembers the term supersessionism, so I use the term replacement theology, because <laughs> no one's going to remember the other one. Come up with a better name if you don't want to be used, have to be called that. Um, so replacement theology, it seems to, uh, to give Israel the curses and give everybody else the blessings. Israel's in destruction, God's done with you, you rejected the Messiah, that's it, end of story. And then the blessings somehow are spiritualized and then given to a largely Gentile church. And that, that doesn't seem to be quite right. Um, replacement theology doesn't make a lot of sense of Israel being back in the land today. How is it that after all this time they're back in the land? I mean, if God really drove them out and cast them off forever, well then how did they squiggle back in there? How'd they sneak back in? How they become a nation again? Why is there a shekel? You know, like why? Why is there a bunch of bunch of people speaking Hebrew in the land of Israel all of a sudden? Like, what's going on? If 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 God, you know, opens doors and no one can close them, and closes doors and no one can open them, He blesses and you can't curse, and curses and you can't bless. Then, then what's going on? Are we looking at God continuing the a uh, uh, a work nationally through Israel? Um, I th- I think we are. I think we are. Um, uh, people like me would have looked crazy. 100 years ago, when Israel wasn't a nation and it didn't seem very realistic to think they ever could be. Uh, but yet there were people like me preaching, that says it in the text, man, it's got to happen. And I, I want to stay on that side. I like that. I like being those people that look crazy and end up being right. Um, I think replacement theology tends to mishandle really specific promises for an earthly kingdom located in Israel with Jerusalem as its capital, I think that, that it causes you to look at those passages and all of a sudden use a whole different way of Bible study than you ever use anywhere else. And I think that seems um, unfair to the text, unfair to the Bible. We don't interpret the prophecies of Jesus this way, that we're already fulfilled. So it just seems inconsistent. And if we take those promises to be less than they appear, then what does that do to the way you study the rest of the Bible? Like, Jesus is coming back. Well, it says he's coming back, but, you know, that's a spiritual terminology. What it really means is, you know, is it, do I just, I can't just take it as it, at its face value, I think, at that point. It starts to get a little sketchy. Um, um, also, Romans 11, verses 5 and 6, let me just remind you to look back on that, where it says that, that all this stuff is by grace, not by works. Israel, no, they don't deserve to be back in the land any more than I deserve Jesus. Um, but, but. They're sustained by grace, the same as I am. And that's kind of one of the points he's making through the, through the chapters of Romans 9, 10, and 11. They're sustained by grace. There is one thing that might, might trip you up as you're, as you're studying the Bible and you look at passages that say things like um, in Galatians or Philippians or, or Revelation, how it talks about there's, there's, they're of the synagogue of Satan. They're not really Jews. That's what it says in two of the letters in Revelation uh, to the churches. Um, but it doesn't say this about every Jewish person, does it? There are some Jews who are not true Jews, just like there are some Christians that aren't really Christians. Right? That's what it's saying. So obviously there are some Jews that aren't really Jews in that sense of, uh, of, a, of 
of a fullness of what it means to be Jewish. Um, and that's what Paul gets into when he says earlier in the chapters, uh, Romans 9, 10, 11, he says, not all, not all Israel, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And he says, gives a case for that. But he doesn't mean here, there's no such thing as Israel or you're the new Israel, forget them. He's just saying not every descendant of, of Jacob is like really a full blood, not even full blood, but full heart Israelite is the idea. Um, that's the concept there. And if you see it as a limiting to a group within a group rather than as a separation, like there's a whole new group coming, forget the old one, we're just going to call you by a new name. Um, you Gentiles are now Israel. That, that's not the case. And what, what should our attitude be then towards modern day Israel? This is kind of, I feel like I have to talk about this because all this being said, what should I say about Israel? There's all these complicated and even politically hot issues about Israel and the Palestinians and the stuff that goes on here and there. And I think, here's what I'll say in general, our attitude should be a hopeful attitude. We should have hope towards Israel, but not hype towards Israel. I'm not gonna act like everything they do is right. I mean, have you read the Bible? Do you think everything that they do is perfect and right? But I will not pretend that God doesn't have these promises for them and that there isn't sort of a general stance of blessing those who bless you, curse those who curse you. That I want to have a general positive stance towards Israel as a nation. Just like if somebody came and invaded some other rightful nation, I would, I would not be okay with that. You know, I, I do think that this, is, this tends to skew me towards a, a more of a positive direction. But I definitely can't approve of everything that's done. Uh, Tel Aviv, I mean, Jerusalem might be one of the most religious places in the world, but Tel Aviv is one of the most ungodly secular places on planet Earth right now. Um, it's pretty intense. It's liberal and it's all kinds of, it's a whole different, a whole different world in Tel Aviv than it is in Israel. It's more like uh, Long Beach down the street. <laughs> it's more like San Francisco than anything else. So... So we, we want to be wise, and we don't have to think, oh, well, they're the people of God, so therefore whatever they're doing is good or something like that. We're like, no, I mean, obviously you guys aren't following Jesus. You're not following Messiah. But I'm hopeful about God's future for you, and I'm careful about coming against something that God might be doing in your people. And so I just want to be wise. Um, you don't have to take a stance on every little issue as a Christian. But I think in the big picture, we can take a stance and say, oh, well, God's clearly going to do this. When is it going to happen? Um, seems to be that it's going to happen when they turn to Christ. The fullness of it will happen. Are we seeing seeds of it now? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. There's more, there's more saved Jewish people in the land of Israel now than ever before. That's just a reality. That's beautiful. That's really good. I like that, right? But I've never seen leaders make more fools of themselves, godly men, than when they try to predict the future based on their observations of the present. Um, I know what will eventually happen, but I don't know when. You know, I, I want to remember what Jesus said to them. He says, well, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know. So I'm going to leave you there with, with a big I don't know. Um, uh, we will uh, we'll continue uh, now moving as we go through the rest of Romans 11 next week into Romans 12. It starts to get very practical, very much into like the Christian daily life and how we, how we live out this life, how we exercise our gifts, what's your gifts, prophecy. We're going to talk about prophecy. We're going to talk about um, wisdom or just all these different types of giftings that, that God has given people. We'll talk about all that. We'll talk about making our lives completely given to the Lord. We'll talk about what it means to, that God's ways are past finding out, all that kind of stuff. We'll get into it all starting next week. Um, but I want to pray and then I want to um, take any questions that you guys that you guys might have maybe maybe some pushback or some challenges or you want some clarity on something
Uh, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your promises that, um, that you fulfill. That when you have gracious promises, promises that are on, on grace and not works, that's irrevocable. And that's, that's what we have in Christ. In Christ. We are secure. We are safe. We are saved. And your love and your patience towards Israel is, is nothing less than a, a reflection of your love and patience towards all people. We pray, Lord, that you would bless Israel with the knowledge of Messiah. That there would be a revival continued and growing, um, exponentially revival in the land. And that we would see the issues between the Jews and Palestinians resolved by the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that can unite. And we do pray for that. It would, it's impossible with man, but with you, Lord, it's possible. So we lift them up, Lord God. We, we do pray for your will in, in those people and uh, for your, your blessings. Absolutely, Lord. But we also pray this. We pray that, that our, our hope and our love and our, our outreach to, uh, to Israel does not become some sort of hindrance in our love and our outreach to, to those who oppose Israel. Lord, we, we, we want to stand between you and, and the world and bring people to Christ. And so give us wisdom in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Pray.